The need to communicate and collaborate on a global level has created a proliferation of cloud-based tools for businesses. But with new channels come new gaps for hackers and many new security blind spots. You need full threat visibility across channels with a solution that works at the speed your company does. Perception Point's multi-layered platform provides the most robust threat prevention on the market. Perception Point advanced collaboration security designs for the modern enterprise. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash perception point. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Join myself and Rich Mogul on none other than May the 4th to learn how to choose the right architecture for your application. Live attendees of this webcast will have a chance to win a $100 Hacker Warehouse gift card. Register for this webcast at securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts. And don't forget to check out the on-demand library at securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. This interview is with Marcus Sachs, the Deputy Director for Research at the McCary Institute for Cyber and Critical Infrastructure Security. He also serves as the Chief Security Officer of the Pattern Computer, is a retired U.S. Army officer, and was a White House appointee in the George W. Bush administration. His private sector experience includes serving as the Deputy Director of SRI's International Computer Science Laboratory, as the Vice President for National Security Policy at Verizon Communications, and is the master of long titles. Marcus, welcome to the show. I should also say you're the Director of the SANS Internet Storm Center as well. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I'm now the Director Emeritus. Ah, so yeah, well, I turned that over to uh, Johannes, oh my, 10 or 12 years ago, and he's okay. done a fantastic job of actually running the Storm Center. But that was something that, um, it's been around since the Y2K era, so it's one of the oldest yes. groups that's still alive, still doing good things, still serving the mission as, uh, as it's been doing. That's awesome. I know, uh, Marcus, I know you've been on the show in the past, but I want to refresh it for our audience. How did you get started in information security? Well, like many of us, uh, we've got backgrounds and have nothing to do <laughs> with what we currently do. So I was in the Army, uh, came in as a second lieutenant, you know, ROTC kind of thing, with an undergrad degree in civil engineering and went right into the Corps of Engineers. But I've always had a hobby interest in ham radio, computers, and I've had a ham radio ticket since I was 13 or 14 years old. We're talking early 70s. So in the Army, everything is all done formally. And back in the 80s, you know, if you were a hacker, nobody knew who you were. But there was a growing number of us who could fix things. We didn't really call ourselves hackers, but we something was broken that had to do with a computer or a computer connection. We pretty much knew how to fix it. After a while, Uncle Sam figures out what you're really good at. Mm. And by the early 90s, I, I wound up getting assigned to Fort Bragg, to 18th Airborne Corps, and became the 18th Airborne Corps, what we called automation officer. Uh, that's kind of an old term, which today would be like a CTO or a CIO. Hmm. But that that was right after the first Gulf War. So we're talking early 90s. And in those days, we could do whatever we wanted to. There really were no rules yet. Everything the Defense Department was doing in terms of offense and defense was locked up behind many doors at the NSA. And the rest of the world really just didn't know what they were doing, and they didn't know what we were doing. So we were free to do whatever we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, we began to figure out, we being uh, a bunch of us in the Army and in the Navy, Air Force, others, that 
computer networks uh, needed to be maintained. We had packet switching. We had routing. Had a, if you remember old Banyan Vines. Yes. Oh, man. You know, Novell networks and all that kind of stuff. And we, we had to make it all work together. So we literally were hacking these networks and hacking devices and getting them to work. Uh, the term security in those days, uh, if you said to somebody that you were a security professional, they really thought you were a guard at Walmart. <laughs> or, you know, doing, doing the night beat around somebody's fence. And this concept that we have today, where everybody wants to be in security 20, 30 years ago, that was not a career field that people really just, you know, wanted to get into. So at some point, you sort of realize this is your passion, this is what you're doing. And Uncle Sam uh, figured out that I was one of the few people that could not only break things, but could fix things and could keep the bad guys out. So I wound up moving to Washington, D.C. in 1998 as part of a brand-new joint task force for computer network defense. Now, this was the first time the Defense Department had actually created an organization deliberately to understand the threat and to defend the Defense Department's networks against those kind of threats. We had computer emergency response teams, you know, CERT teams, and we did have, as I mentioned with NSA, this behind-the-green-door capability that nobody knew about but actually create an out-in-the-open um, defense unit was a, was a new thing. And we quickly said, you know, we can do this defense all day long, but defenders don't win wars. You know, you got to go on the offense at some point. Same thing with, you know, sports and football. You can't just play defense. You have to go on offense. And eventually we added offense to what we were doing. And the lawyers got a little squirrely on that and back and forth it went. And ultimately about 10 years later, uh, the DOD created Cyber Command. Mm, right. Right. Now, wait, where, where were you for, speaking of the football analogy, there was Operation Eligible Receiver. That, yep. that was before, where were you during that time? Yeah, so Eligible Receiver happened when I was at Fort Hood, Texas. Mm -hmm. So I was the, I moved from Bragg to Hood. So I was the, the Corps, 18th Airborne Corps Automation Officer at Bragg. And, then and Bra Bragg is North Carolina? That's correct. Yeah, yep. Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And in the mid-90s, the Defense Department, the Army in particular, were looking at you know, the future battlefields and what would computers and computer networks bring to us. So in the Army, we had a thing called Force 21, or digitization of the battlefield. And they chose Fort Hood and specifically 4th Infantry Division to be the test division to see, you know, with the question being, what would happen if we put all these computers and things all over the tanks and Apache helicopters and inside the infantryman's uh, backpack. Well, we were running these experiments at Fort Hood when eligible receiver. Mm -hmm. And that, in case the readers don't know, that's an exercise, an annual exercise, highly classified. And in 1997, the uh, point of the exercise was to see if fictitious North Korean hackers could break into the real Pacific Command or PACOM out in Hawaii. So it was all scripted, run by NSA, top secret classified type of thing. And as you can imagine, NSA had trouble getting in. But they, you know, they left all the clues. They came in through AOL, mm -hmm. Earthling. If you remember all those dial-up ISPs from, from the late 90s. Yeah, I, I and, heard the story, Mark, is that it wasn't the NSA's A team, as it were. It was the B team. That was yeah, that's 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 very likely. So and, okay. You know, okay. Likely excuse. To be, yeah. to be fair, the system administrators in those days were not expecting to be attacked. Mm. You know, they were more looking for how do you make Microsoft work, work. with Apple? Yep. You know, how do you yep. integrate these other things? And 
and attacks just were not really, I mean, there was malware, of course, you know, we had uh, viruses and things along those lines we were, de- were beginning to deal with. Antivirus software was starting to come of age, but to think in terms of a, of a, a nation attacking somebody, well, eligible receiver, 1997, proved it could be done. I was, again, at Fort Hood at the time. I heard about it through the grapevine, but it was highly classified, so we didn't get all the details. But we knew that somebody had conducted an exercise out in Hawaii, and it was very successful. Um, But the rest of the story, of course, was this was all briefed up at the Pentagon, Mm -hmm. and there were lots of non-believers. You know, yeah, of course, this is NSA. They can break into anything they want to. You know, we would would be disappointed if they had not done it. Well, in February of 98... So just literally months later, the United States Air Force came under an attack. And this was about the time that, if you remember, between the two Gulf Wars, we had a no-fly zone to the north of Iraq and a no-fly zone to the south of Iraq. And we told Saddam Hussein, as long as you stay between those two uh, no-fly zones, you know, those, those lines on the, on the ground, you can fly around. But if you go above it or below it, we're going to shoot you out of the sky. Well, the Air Force, which, of course, is conducting all these operations, come under an attack, and all the clues, all the forensics point back to Baghdad. You know, and you get this kind of, oh, my gosh, everything we talked about during eligible receiver last year, which was just an exercise, is now actually happening. Only it's not the North Koreans, it's the Iraqis. And it's not Pacific Command, it's the entire Air Force, and they're attacking us. And you can imagine the panic you know, that, that's unfolding up inside the Pentagon. Well, as, as investigations unfolded over the next several days, believe it or not, it turns out it's two teenagers in California mm-hmm. that are doing all this, and they're acting like Iraqis. And we came very, nice. very close, yeah, yeah, very close to you know going physical over this thing against Baghdad when it turns out it's not Baghdad at all. Now, this was a great awakening because we're, we're two teenagers are showing the Defense Department that it really, that cartoon, you remember this thing from a long time ago about nobody knows you're a dog on the internet? Yep. Right. And, uh, nobody knows you're a teenager. They think you're an Iraqi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, was, this was really eye-opening. And I get a phone call, spring of 98, um, that says, hey, we need you to come up here to Washington. And uh, we're putting together this joint task force. And Again, I'd heard a little bit about it through the grapevine, so I flew up to Washington, and they said, you interested? And I said, of course. <laughs> so we, my wife was not interested. She liked it down in Texas. Didn't right. want to live in Washington. But, well, we moved there anyway. And uh, we stayed there for 22 years before we finally left a couple of years ago. So it, it, um, you know, it, was a, it was a time almost like barnstorming for the aviators, you know, like, like after World War I but before World War II started. That time, mm-hmm. late 90s, early 2000s, we really were kind of making things up. We literally were barnstorming. You know, we, if you needed a, a runway in those days, you'd find a cow pasture. You know, and in our case, if you needed a hacker, you needed somebody with skills, you'd go look for, go to DEF CON, see what you could hire. Right, <laughs> it, was, right. it was a strange time. And in fact, uh, we even began to establish good, strong relationships between this joint task force and the hacking community. Um, many people who are probably watching this episode can remember 20 plus years ago out at DEF CON and Black Hat and, and many other cons where those of us in DOD were working with them, trading information. It was building partnerships because we knew that the, the common, the, the threats were common. And here in America, we're trying to defend the same stuff. So it was, 
there's a neat little band of brothers that emerged back in those days. It's all been formalized now under Cyber Command. Under Cyber Command, uh, right? So, yeah. yeah. So it's not it's not as kind of free for all as it was 20 years ago, and it's probably good that it's matured. But there was that brief window there where things served very much like uh, you know barnstorming the old airplanes. And I, in a way, I kind of wish it was like that for the youngsters because we didn't have the constraints or the rules to operate under. We were you know freely able to to do things. Today, there's a lot of boundaries, a lot of guardrails in place to make sure that the uh, the young ones in the Defense Department don't break anything. Um, and so I think part of that spirit is gone, mm-hmm. and maybe we need to recapture a bit of that and you know, make some more room for the, the young minds that are coming in to, to be you know, more free, more able to do things. So I, I agree. I agree, Marcus. You know, I was talking with someone earlier, um, and they were describing in the 80s and earlier 90s than the time frame you were describing, right? It was really like exploration. You'd get into a system, you'd find a system, see what you can do with it. If it was missing patches, you'd, you'd go ahead and like patch it for them, right? Like he, was, yeah. he likened it to like, you know, walking my dog and I'll pick up the dog poop and I find some trash, so I pick that up too, right? Because you're a good citizen. Yeah, it's like security as a service. You yeah. Help really it, and now it's, it's really difficult to do that in in a public setting right now we think of it in terms of labs and, and things like that which we should encourage but different times you know well marcus what did, what did you do in the george w bush administration well well it's kind of a continuation of the story so uh at the joint task force you know we were beginning to put together rules of the road what we're supposed to do how we interact with foreign cyber adversaries identifying them and we had identified, or the intelligence community had identified Osama bin Laden as a terrorist, uh, Al-Qaeda as a terrorist group. So we knew all about that. We knew about the, the different Chinese groups, Russian groups, and others. But for many of us, uh, Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden were physical terrorists. There, there really was no connection to cyberspace. But what we were seeing through the 90s was you know, this growth of cyber threats. And everybody thought, if you would have asked us on the morning of September 11th, 2001, prior to 9 a.m. Eastern time, what would be the next attack on America? Well, they probably would say, oh, it would be the cyber Pearl Harbor. It would be an an attack against the power grid, attack against uh, the water systems or against banking and finance. So 10 minutes later, when the first airplane hits the first tower, and then a few minutes after that, the second airplane hits the second tower, many people in cyberland we're wondering, okay, I thought the next attack was going to be cyber, but here they come again doing it physical. And it, it really caught a lot of us off guard because we literally thought it was going to be a cyber attack and not physical. Well, as the days went by, we come to find out there, you know, there actually was a, quite a large cyber connection here. We, we found that terrorist groups had been uh, gaining access to systems. They'd been using it for reconnaissance, for intelligence gathering, money laundering, you know, making money to finance these, uh, these operations. And at the White House, there was still a lot of concern of, of a second attack. Uh, history-wise, if you look at um, this thing happened in, in September of 01, in January, February of 02, there was the Salt Lake City Olympics coming up, and a big fear that there would be a cyber or physical attack impacting the Olympics, kind of like a phase two of what right. happened on September 11. But many at that time, Marcus, thought that the anthrax scare was phase Anthrax was also yep, part of it as well. You're absolutely right. So about 
at the time that, of that terrorist event happening, I was at the end of my 20-year career. I'd already announced my retirement. Was out, uh, been interviewing with you know, various contractors and companies and so forth, and found a couple of them I really like to work with, uh, with the plan of retiring at the end of the year and early O2 go off to industry. So I got a phone call from the White House maybe last week of September, first week of October. Hey, we hear you're hired. You're uh, retiring. How'd you like to come work for us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> My it's question not is, how this works. How do you know I'm retiring? Well, with White House, we know these things. Mm-hmm. Touche. Yeah, <laughs> you should know these things. Fair I'm disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, then it was, okay, do I go off to industry? Do I go off to the White House? So, you know, you kind of think about it because the White House, it's a seven-day-a-week job, 24 by seven. There's, mm. there's really no rest while you're there. And it's, a, it's not something you take lightly. So you really have to, you know, deeply think about it. But all my friends are, you know, and of course my family just say you can't say no to something like that. So I literally retired on a Friday and Saturday and Sunday off, signed in on Monday at the White House. And for those who work there, you probably know what I'm talking about, particularly if you had a short appointment and you're not political. It's almost like Cinderella. You know, one day you walk into this beautiful castle and everything, and then the next day you're back into outside the door. <laughs> it all just goes by so fast. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. But I was part of the National Security Council, and um, we, we were creating teams there to understand all the different types of threats. So cyber was one of them, you know, chemical, anthrax, mm-hmm. all the different biology, things like that. And when I started working there, there had been rumors of creating a Department of Homeland Security, a DHS. Mm-hmm. But uh, politically, it wasn't something that uh, either party really wanted to do because it had been enlarging government. And, but after a while, it became necessary that we had to do that. So by the summer of 2002, the decision had been made, we will create this, this new department called DHS. And all of these special staffs that were put together in the wake of September 11th, that laser focused on, okay, how do we build this thing? What are the different parts? So our group and this, this cyber group, which was um, uh, maybe 10 of us, 10 or 12 of us or so, uh, Richard Clark, Dick Clark. I was, was going to say Dick Clark was there at that time, right? Uh, yeah, he was, he was the uh, uh, special assistant to the president for, for cyber things. And um, we began working on a plan, a, a national strategy to secure cyberspace was the name of the plan. And then Homeland Security was then to, uh, the cyber piece of it would then execute that plan. So this all came together by the beginning of 03. So roughly a year after we stood everything up, we began announcing what all these um, strategies and plans would look like. Uh, Homeland Security opened their doors, I want to say March or so of 03. And uh, we began shutting down those operations in the White House and moving them over to Homeland. So most of us uh, either went back to where you came from if you were um, from another agency, maybe you're from the Defense Department or from the State Department. There are a few of us like me who I retired from DOD and then I became an appointee to the White House, not not doing duty there, you know, as an assignment. And so I'm thinking about, okay, if we're done here, it's time to head back to industry or, you know, pick up where I've left off type of thing. And they said, no, we, we need some folks to help us get DHS started. So, Okay, fine. <laughs> still in the government, maybe we'll stay there. And so three of us literally stood up uh, what today has become CISA. So oh, many years, yeah, many years later, this multi-thousand person at CISA began with three of us in May of 2003. Now, who are the, and, who are the other folks, Marcus, out of curiosity? 
Yeah, I figured you would ask that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned these two that. other people, and I'm like, wait, who are they? Do we do we know their names? Yeah, uh, gosh, yeah. You know what senior moments are, right? I'll think of it as soon as we hang up the. Uh, the I, I asked Marcus because your recollection of all these details and everything is astonishing. But yeah, way, I'm, I'm really. Away. We're talking the twenty, almost twenty years, roughly twenty years ago. So. It's been a while. Well, I mean, it was. It's so one of the things we've learned in cyber is we suck at, at keeping track of things. Mm. When it comes to the history books, yeah, agree. Those who uh, do not remember their history are doomed to repeat it. Yes, yeah. well said, sir. Yeah, and and when we created the JTF, for example, we began. You know, people who were new to it were repeating things, and we had a number of folks from the seventies and eighties who came in and visited us and said, "Hey, we did this on a mainframe, or we did this on an early, you know, ARPANET network or an X twenty five network." And uh, you guys are not inventing anything new. Mm. You know, we've already been down this road. In fact, do you remember the book called The Cuckoo's Egg? Mm-hmm. Oh, very well. Yeah, yeah. Cliff Stoll. Yeah, so yeah, Cliff Stoll's book. So we made that required reading for everybody in the JTF. Read the Cuckoo's Egg, which right. at that point was pushing 12 years old or so. And it could have been written the day earlier. I mean, the things we were seeing in the late 90s were exactly as what they had seen in the late 80s. So very little had changed. The technology has changed, but the the, the attacks and stuff were more or less the same. So Yeah, and I mean, it, that turned know, out to be espionage, Really? Yeah. I mean, I well, it was the Chaos Computer Club, the CCC. Yeah, Germany. they were affiliated with the C. There's a there's another great book that now I'm having a senior moment, and I told Larry yeah. about that. That tells the other side of the story around Pengo and the other hackers that were on the other side of Clifford right. Stall. Right. Uh, right. And it was, yeah, it was I, like I didn't realize there was that component to the story. Uh, and I think if you read collectively those works, you'll kind of get the full picture. <laughs> to your point, Marcus, mm-hmm. like. Not not much has changed. Like those are still lessons yeah. we need to learn and stories we need so to, have, to read. You, about. you know Jay Healy, right? I'm sure you've talked to yeah. him before. I don't know. So if Jay have, and I have a show, yeah, but I yeah, know you him. might want to interview him. So Jay's actually written a book. Uh, now it's Air Force centric. He was an Air Force mm-hmm. officer, so he kind of looking over his shoulder was saying, you know, we've spent a lot of time capturing the early history of aviation, particularly you know Air Force style aviation and naval aviation mm. and so forth. Um, and we teach young aviators, you know, here's the history. When you go to flight school, you know, starting off with the Wright brothers, even before them with balloons. So everybody knows the history of military aviation. But the history of military cyber, virtually unresearched. So he wrote a book about it a number of years ago just to, to start that process. And I mm. think that's, that's an area we, we do not do well. And a lot of people coming into this career field today think that it all started maybe with the iPhone. Right. <laughs> Well, even yeah, several, even several years ago, I remember someone critiquing Sands, going, "Oh, I sat in a Sands class and we learned about all this old stuff." And I'm like, "No, no, no, no! Like, you're, I don't agree with that critique at all because learning that old stuff has provided such a foundation." And I took right. a lot of that Sands training, you know, exactly number of years right. ago. I was like, "Those are really fantastic lessons." And, and to and, learn and from, if the, and if the old stuff still works, is it really old? Yeah, uh, it's true. <clears throat> but a lot of and it was funny. A lot of pen testers will tell you today, "Hey, I pulled a payload from a mm-hmm. Metasploit version that's 10, 15 years old. I don't know. Uh, Met- Metasploit, I think, works. goes back that far, and it works today. Yeah. It's it's really close cool. to being that old because yeah. it came out right when we started the podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And As you of want to be a couple really of years cool, ago. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm sorry. As of a couple of years ago, HD Moore claimed <laughs> that the original version of Metasploit, if you can actually find it, there's 11 exploits in it. And the 11th exploit works on a bank, and it still worked up until when he gave the talk that I watched, which was probably 20... Oh, never mind. Okay, it's yeah. several years Check ago, out, but yeah. uh, 2007. Darknet Diaries, episode 114 with HD Moore for a little walk down there memory we go. lane. There we yeah, go. It's a great episode. <laughs> yeah, not that you don't remember everything yourself. With you know, yeah. such <laughs> right. I remember because HD was just on a podcast I listened to last week. <laughs> yep, 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 exactly. Well, you know, if you could find some of uh, Kevin Mitnick's exploits yeah. you know, that he did, some of those things probably work just fine. I mean, there's a lot of this... What we think is old school hacking, to your point, I would be trying that. If I was a pen tester, I'd be running through those old tools first before I start this you know, mm. new super elite kind of things because you're likely to get in. And it's, you know, that's unfortunate because we're not teaching our defenders a lot of those basics, you know, turning off unneeded services, you know, mm. things, along, you know, things that we all just take for granted that um, – the new new people coming into this career field just don't understand. And by the way, we can maybe segue into that a little bit later. Uh, we we're horrible when it comes to attracting people to this career field. Yeah, there are so many openings and growing year by year, and so few people that want to get into it. And oh, I, it just, speaking of which, that brings me back to CISA. And what? So how did? So you served under the George W. Bush administration. DHS was formed. I remember that very vividly. Um, and then, but there was a division of Homeland Security that became what CISA is today. Marcus, how did that happen? Yeah, so, and by the way, Jerry Dixon mm. was one of, the, one of the three of us. I just remember, and I know Jerry so well. I don't know why I couldn't come up with this <laughs> name. Okay. I put you on the spot there. It's all right. Yeah, I'll think of the other one in just a minute. But, but yeah, when, when this began, there was a part of, so Homeland Security, as you probably know, has a lot of uniformed groups. That's mm-hmm. the Secret Service, the National, uh, the uh, Coast Guard, TSA, Borders. You know, those are all uniformed. There's also um, non-uniformed, like the research people, that uh, uh, there used to be, or today, CISA, mm-hmm. uh, but there used to be a group called IAIP, Infrastructure Analysis, uh, uh, Information Analysis and Infrastructure Protection. Yep. Uh, IAIP had its own undersecretary and buried inside of there on the IP side was where you found cyber. Mm. But it's also where you found all the other you know, infrastructures that, that uh, DHS was worried about. Those uh, IAIP eventually went away, uh, created, you know, there's been several groups along that have come along, but but ultimately CISA, which I believe is three years old now, is a full agency, just like TSA or just like FEMA and others. It sits on that same par. Yeah, but that, I was corrected. I was corrected in saying that in the Trump administration, CISA was created. Some people, like it wasn't created, it was more formalized in, in that That's correct. I mean, the term, yeah. the term Congress is the one that created, if you want to call it that, you know, put sure. it into congressional language, made it a law and gave it funding. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that point, the functions were all there. And right. certainly, you know, the building where they all operate out of uh, in, in the uh, Northern Virginia, Metro DC area, all that was there, the same people. But there had long been talk about they needed to have agency staffs instead yeah. of just being one of the staffs of DHS. And that they finally got the right people in Congress to agree to that. And that president Trump signed into law. So that way you, you could say it was created under Trump, mm-hmm. but the idea is certainly predate go back to Obama and, and you know, before. So it's not, yeah. it wasn't new in terms of an idea, but it's definitely, that's when it stood up was uh, during the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And now it's fully funded, and and they're you know programmatically they're growing. They've uh, got new ideas. They're building. They're not uniformed. I don't think we'll ever see them wearing mm-hmm. uniforms. Or, nor do we want them to. But um, but they need yeah. you know the outreach. They're they're building. They're trying to put um, uh, people across the states, major cities, and counties. So yeah, Marcus and I didn't know this till like last month when I met the CISA representative for Rhode Island, and I was like, wait, mm-hmm. what do you mean we have a CISA? He's like. Paul, every state has a CISA representative, yeah. like a liaison almost. I'm like, I didn't yeah. know that. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And that again shows their maturity. Yeah. That it's not just a DC thing or right. it's not, you know, just for the, uh, the high level companies, you know, the, the big, you know, Fortune 500s, but, but it is something we need to get out. Um, you know, as, as we talked about a little while ago, I, I don't live in DC anymore. We moved two years ago down to Alabama. And here in Alabama, like in most rural, focused or farming focused states, they have extension services. And the extension services are similar. You know, these are in all the, the little cities and counties and, and they're there to help the agricultural community, the farmers and, and mm. growers and stuff. If they need to know about fertilizer, they need to know about uh, different types of crops, soil conditions, all government funded, you know, this outreach to the agricultural community. Well, that same mindset mm-hmm. can certainly be there in cyber. There's no reason right. why we can't extend this out across America. It doesn't have to be just in Washington. And I, I think that's a really cool model. We, we do it, you know, with, with other sectors of the economy. So why not do it with cyber? A cyber extension service to offer mm-hmm. to the small business, the, the farmer, the farmer of the business world, yeah. the yeah. small business. Wouldn't that be something, mm-hmm. right? And then extend that, if you like the farming model, you've probably heard of 4-H, you know, the youth group where they, they teach Oh, yeah, them and Future Farmers of America. Right, I grew up on right, a farm, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, FFF, or FFA, as well as 4-H. I mean, we ought to be thinking the same way with cyber. You know, can we set up something similar in middle schools and high schools that are designed to start getting kids interested? I mean, we do have cyber core, and we've got, you know, some – other things that are getting going, but a more formal along the lines of like scouting groups or 4-H or future farmers. And, and I, I think that would really kind of raise this, raise the bar a little bit and get more people interested in the career field. Because <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier, we have a huge shortfall now and it's only getting worse. So uh, Marcus, to I'm going to invite you. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Marcus, I'm going to invite you. I run, uh, I'm one of the organizers of B-Sides Delaware and B-Sides DC. And we actually have Spawn Camp and Crypt Kids, respectively, for the conferences. We name them different things, but we have a lot of the same events. Uh, we let the kids take computers apart and uh, overhead projectors and everything else so they learn with their hands. And we give them uh, children wireless challenges. We actually have a fox and hound game with the kids. It's awesome with RTLSDRs. And um, we do kids crypto challenges and, all, and escape rooms and things like that between the two conferences. So we're trying. Well, you know, it, it, since you mentioned that, it, it, the question earlier was how did I get into this? My grandfather in the late 60s, I want to say maybe 67, 68, when I was still a one-digit kid, <laughs> maybe seven or eight years old, he handed me his old pocket watch, which was broken. And the challenge was, can you take it apart and tell me what makes it tick? Now, imagine doing that to a seven-year-old. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, imagine finding a pocket watch <laughs> that yeah. ticks. And hand it to a seven-year-old and say, take it apart and tell me how it ticks. Well, do that in, in the cyber world. You know, here's an iPhone that doesn't work anymore. Take it apart and tell me how the how this thing actually works. 
you know, you want to stimulate these little minds, get them curious. I think that's that's a big piece is the curiosity factor. So you don't have to be a super duper programmer, you know, you know, real, really good with a soldering iron and whatnot. But if you're curious and you're naturally curious, this is a great field to get into. And I, I also should say the other group that's missing is law enforcement. Um, kids that come into this career field and want to work for the government generally go to the DOD, DHS, things like that. Very few go to the FBI or Secret Service or even to local law enforcement, police and, um, and sheriff's departments. They need smart brains who can do digital forensics, who can examine crime scenes and they know what evidence to pick up digital evidence and, and use that for prosecution. So, you know, this, this is kind of an appeal to any parents who might be watching this. If you've got a bright, young, curious child, push them into this field. They don't have to be, you know, nerdy computer programmers. There's lots of room, mm. lots of room for people who are curious and want to learn and kind of have that aptitude. Uh, we really, really, really need more coming in. I'm, I'm just afraid we're creating this highly complex environment that people just don't understand. And our adversaries can take advantage of it. And that's... Um, one of the best things we can be doing for all of us is just trying to attract more people into the career field. Yeah. Well, I'm an ex cop and I'll tell you that it's it, it, when I was a cop back in 2002, 2005, somewhere in there, um, it was horrible because the digital forensics field was, you know, if you're not an ex cop, ex FBI, you can't do digital forensics. I'm like, I teach it. Yeah. And they, they brought me to the crime lab. They, they asked me, you know, I'm an active duty officer at that moment. Right. They bring me into the crime lab, like, all right, show us digital forensics. I'm like, all right. So I, I look at their machine. I'm like, you've got autopsy configured wrong. And like, we don't use autopsy. We use end case. I'm like, well, that's your first problem. <laughs> and they're like, but, but end case is the best. I'm like, it is very good at certain things. But at the time it was end case three or end case four. I'm like, but there are certain things that autopsy and sleuth get is better at. Mm. And volatility was just coming out. And so I was showing them that and they were blown away. And then they're like, all right, so we want you to work over here. Okay, um, what's the deal? And like, well, you give up your gun, you give up your badge, um, you, your pay goes down, <laughs> and oh, you don't, enticing. and you can't take any details to make extra money. Like, you know, hmm. I'm gonna pass. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, you, think, you know, having those it's, right it's incentive, yeah, having those right incentive programs and, and pushing people down the right paths is is key in all these areas, right? And it has gotten mm -hmm. better. I, I was listening to last week's episode, you know, where Captain Alfred was talking about, uh, you know, how, how do you come to be the technical forensics expert in the police department? Like, oh, I, I knew how to load paper in the printer, so therefore I was, <laughs> I was the forensics expert, right? <laughs> yeah, I fixed the boss's computer, did a control alt delete, yeah. and started working. So now right. I'm just now I'm the, the forensics expert. expert. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mark, I, I did. Um, I did want to ask you about some of the uh, collection of uh, crypto uh, mechanical cipher equipment. I read the book Code Girls. Love mm -hmm. that book. I, that, book mm -hmm. was, that book was amazing. Very eye-opening to when we talk about mechanical manual cipher and crypto systems was very eye-opening, even to just that aspect and many others. Uh, you know, just uh, perspectives on, in, the war, in the war uh, and all of that stuff was just amazing. Uh, and, and it kind of got me nerding out a little. Like, what what was available at at the time? I'm assuming you've read you've read that book. 
Yeah, not only read it, but met the lady who wrote it. She's a fascinating lady as well. So oh, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, there was, um, uh, we're just restarting it, but pre-COVID, NSA would have uh, every other year symposium up, up near Fort Meade. And the last one we did before COVID started, the author showed up and was mm. you know, pitching her book because it was brand new. So it was kind of fun. She gave a good talk on it. All the ladies she interviewed. Amazing. Um, obviously, are still around, and she was trying, struggling to do interviews before the Code Girls all died. That's a you know big yeah. problem because yeah. people were, you know, in their nineties. She had a few of them she'd interviewed that are already into their hundreds, and um, you know, family members that could do recollections for for those who were long mm -hmm. gone. But it, she said it was one heck of a project. Kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with capturing the history. Right. You, know, you can you can let Hollywood do it. If you look at the movie. Um, uh, about Alan Turing, the and, imitation uh, imitation game, yeah, imitation games, right? That, which has inspired a lot of people, but it's not exactly historically accurate, but it makes no. a good Hollywood. It does, and, yeah. Uh, I remember my my in laws going, "Oh, it was this great movie we watched, and it was the guy that did the code break." I'm like, "Oh, the imitation game, Alan Turing." They're like, "Yeah, how did you how did you know that?" I'm like, like it's part of our history in technology and security. Yeah, that's right. I mean, but I, you know, I'm not knocking the movie. Everybody should watch it. Agreed. But you know, if you want a really cool one, read Cryptonomicron. If you want to get turned on about encryption and, and, and the Enigma and Alan Turing and all that, that's that's the book to read. Mm -hmm. And and amazing tie-ins. Uh, we watch um uh one of those adventure re recovery shows um with uh Josh I can't remember I Mind blank. Are you having a senior moment? Too? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and uh, the episode that was recorded on the DVR was about uh, the Japanese, um, the Japanese gold that had been hidden in the Philippines, yep. which was yep. tied right oh, into yeah. the Cryptonomicon stuff. And I'm like, mm. I want to watch that one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that book. I, you know, it's hard to read. It's it's a hard book to read, but it is definitely something everybody in this field should be reading because there's so, and granted it's fiction, but they've got a lot of historically accurate threads mm -hmm. that run through it, which is really cool. But, but let's go back to um, what you wanted to talk about with, you know, collecting mechanical devices. So we all have hobbies and interests and it's kind of fun when your, your passion, you know, security intersects with a really cool hobby. So mechanical cipher devices, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the Enigma machine. That's, you know, the, the, kind of like the ultimate uh, encryption device. But there are many others. So the, the brief history of this is that mechanical encryption has its roots back to the Romans, Greeks, and before, you know, with um, little wheels and devices and dials you can spin. So that the idea of, of, uh, of using mechanical things to help encrypt is, is not novel. What changed, though, was post-Civil War. The, you had telegraphs, of course, during the Civil War, so messages could, would only move as fast as a telegraph operator could type them out. So if you wanted to encrypt something, you, you could take your time encrypting it because it would probably take longer to transmit it by telegraph than it would take to encrypt it. But as radio began to come of age and telephone starts to come of age uh, a few decades after the Civil War, there was a recognition that we needed to make the speeds go faster. The electric typewriter was introduced in the 1880s, 1890s timeframe, which was a pretty big breakthrough in order to, uh, or, or actually just the regular typewriter was a big breakthrough. And so in the early 1900s, say about the end of World War I or so, 
there were some inventions that all happened about the same time that took the concept of a typewriter, a mechanical typewriter, and the need for creating encryption faster, with the idea being, can I just type out my message using a typewriter, but instead of the text that's coming off on the paper being what I typed in, could it come out as ciphertext, cryptic text? It's an easy question. The answer is obviously is yes. And so one of the first machines introduced around 1919 or so was called the Enigma machine. Enigma being you know, a word that means puzzle or something difficult to understand. It was not introduced as a wartime machine. This was after World War I. And in fact, in the 1920s, uh, thousands of these machines were sold to businesses here in the United States and elsewhere as business encryption devices. Mm. The fear there was that if a business wanted to place an order, wanted to communicate with a business partner, the message, you know, if it went through telegraph or if it was uh, read to somebody over a telephone, it was just too easy to eavesdrop. You had too many telephone operators that could listen to phone calls. You had too many telegraph operators that could listen in. So this type of encryption was really designed for business uses. Well, in the early 30s, as the Nazis came to power, they needed to have some mechanism for encrypting what they were uh, wanting to do on the battlefield. And the Enigma machine was the obvious choice. They're made there in Germany. So they nationalized the company, forbade them from making any further machines for private industry or for any other sales, and then added some modifications to it. Now, collecting these things is interesting. There's probably 40,000 or so Enigma machines that were made during World War II by the, by the Nazis. For those of us that collect them, we've identified less than 400 that oh actually exist. So, yeah, we're talking, you know, 1% uh, roughly that have survived. Wow. So I'm lucky to know two people that actually own one, Ed Scotus being uh, the other. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. So, but I own two of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep. And um, yeah, Ed's machine and my machine, we've had them both side by side at SANS conferences, which is you know, mm. kind of fun to, to do that. But but um, collecting them is an interesting hobby. It's an expensive hobby, as you can mm-hmm. imagine. Yep. Especially but you don't have 400. To, yeah, you don't have to start <clears throat> with an Enigma. Um, right now on, on eBay, if I was to go and look, I can find other machines. I'm not saying start with eBay because you, mm. you can't always trust everything on eBay. Sure. But the, the Swiss, for example, they had a version of the Enigma that was made by the Germans used in Switzerland during World War II. And the Swiss mathematicians did not trust the version of the Enigma that they were making for the Swiss. So they started working on their own machine. Uh, the problem was it took them forever. And they didn't finish it until after World War II. So about 1945, 46 was when the Swiss had their machine ready. But they went ahead and built several hundred of them. And they used a couple of hundred for training. They used a couple of hundred of them out in all the embassies and a couple of hundred more for um, wartime reserve. Well, those machines were in use until the early 90s. Wow. They got about 50 years worth of use. And then the Swiss at that point converted all over to computers and got rid of the the old typewriter style. Well, they just sold them off to surplus. And you could literally buy one of these Swiss encryption devices for $50, $60 back in the early 90s. Today you can find them for a few thousand. I mean, they're not terribly expensive. They work just uh, like try again. eBay yeah. for the Swiss NEMA forty-five, the one you're talking about, eighteen thousand dollars on eBay. That is a very high price. I can show you others that you can buy for four or five thousand. In fact, look at if you get a chance on eBay, go into the history. You know where things have been sold, and you'll see that eighteen thousand 
I don't think he's going to sell it. Current asking price, 18000 Right. Yeah. Right. Or he's going to sell it to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Mm. And so encryption device collecting is like collecting art. You can get stung pretty bad. Somebody may mm. actually write a check for $18,000 thinking they found this rare device, only to find out two weeks later I could have bought it for five or $6,000. Yeah, it's like somebody else. It's like collecting rare Japanese swords, buying stuff off of eBay. You yeah, got to be yeah. really, you really careful. You really need to know what you're doing. Yep. Uh, with Enigmas, yeah, they're kind of hard to find now. Once the Imitation Game movie came out, that their value, you know, just went way up because uh-huh. everybody wanted to own one. And unfortunately, you know, the ones that the few that you can find for sale are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're. They're almost impossible um, unless you win the lottery or you know, you're a well-funded startup. <laughs> you want to spend some of your startup cash on an Enigma machine. <laughs> you, want, but, you want to have an Enigma machine in your lobby of your startup or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, there, and believe me, there are a few that do that you know, mm. because their uh, their founder may be you know, uber wealthy and he's using some of his money to, to create the startup. And so he's, you know, he just came out of an exit, so he's sitting on top of a lot of cash. So they go buy an Enigma to put in their lobby. But, mm-hmm. but that being said, uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier I have two. The second one was dug up about five or six years ago in eastern France. So a large number of Enigmas. The reason there's so few that survived was most were destroyed, mm-hmm. uh, destroyed yeah, they, by the Germans because they were retreating. Yeah, right? they were ordered to be destroyed, weren't they? Exactly. Yeah, and in many cases, what they did is they either shot it. Uh, hit it with a rifle butt, you know, did anything to mechanically render it disabled, and then throw it in a hole and bury it, throw it down a latrine, you know, whatever you could do to get, throw it in the lake, anything so that the allies couldn't recover it. Well, these things do get dug up from time to time. In fact, a couple of years ago, two really nice ones were uh, recovered out of the North Sea. Some divers found them, brought them up there. Uh, they can't be restored. You know, if they've been underwater for 80 years or buried in a hole for 80 years, it's kind of hard to restore them. But you can still, you know, clean them up as best you can. So the one I have is, is the second one I have is an example like that. And I'll tell you right up front, it cost me a few thousand euros. That was it. Mm. You know, nothing like the hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's because I it was dug up by a guy who wanted he didn't want it and he sold it at a flea market. And a friend of mine in France called me and said, Hey, this is at the flea market. Do you want it? I said, Sure. Oh, yeah. Take PayPal, Venmo, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wire transfer. Yeah, exactly. Wire transfer. <laughs> yeah. Now, the one that came out of the, the, the ocean, is that not working, I'm assuming? That's correct, yeah. Gotcha. I mean, you can you can get all the crud off of it, but it, it mechanically will never survive. Now, if you're in North Carolina, you can go see a couple of these. There's a lot of German subs that were sunk off the East Coast of the United States. They call it the graveyard of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And those subs all contain two Enigma machines. Mm-hmm. So there's a U-boat that was, uh, people have been diving it for a number of years. There's a, there's a book out, out called Shadow of the Sea. That uh, It's a fun read. And it's uh, written by the divers who went down and actually dug, who dove this, this old German U-boat. So for a number of years, the agreement was you could dive it, you could take pictures of it, but don't go inside. Mm-hmm. And here's an interesting little factoid is that if a German U-boat surrendered to the Allies, it becomes the property of whoever they surrendered to. So if they surrendered to the British or to us or whatever, mm-hmm. it becomes our property. But if we sunk it, in other words, it didn't surrender, it still belongs to Germany. Mm. So the U-boats that were sunk off the North Carolina coast, if they didn't surrender, they're still German property, including one particular one, U-571, that is still German property. The 
the sailors that were in there, it's, it's a graveyard. The bones are still inside. There's, there's still Germans there. Uh, the divers at one point decided they popped the hatches and they went in anyway. Of course, the thing is filled with sand, so it mm-hmm. took a lot of work to get the sand out, but what they were going after was the enigmas. And you can see it in the book, The Salvage and Recovery Operations, where they went and they pulled out two enigma machines. Those today sit at the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum in mm-hmm. Cape Hatteras. So if you're ever down at Cape Hatteras, go check it out. You can see what a couple of old Enigma machines look like that were sitting under salt water uh, for a lot of years. Yeah, one of one of so, the last ones I remember seeing that was recovered and was on, on the internet, of course, and I don't remember how long ago, uh, but it was one they had found in the bottom of a lake and looked like it had been uh, smashed with the butt of a rifle and then tossed yeah. in the lake, and was pretty yeah, darn this rough. One that I have, it, it's got a very clear bullet hole in it. You can see where they shot it with a Mauser. Um, the, the plug board on the front is all broken up where they kicked it and the real clear rifle, butt, uh, you know, uh, imprint <laughs> across uh-huh. the top. Yeah. They, they did everything by the book in order to dispose of that machine before they uh, threw it down into some hole somewhere. So, so, you know, another fun story, these things do turn up in attics. People will be cleaning out their old barn. They might find two or three of them that uh, were left behind. About four or five years ago, a, quote, old German typewriter turned up in a flea market in Budapest. And there was a a British professor uh, on holiday, as they would say, taking (laughs) vacation with his family, uh, just happened to be totaling through the uh, flea market, sees the old German typewriter, knew exactly what that was, and happily paid 100 euros for the old German typewriter. Got lucky. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Talk yeah. about luck. And then sold it yeah. to an auction house for fifty, sixty thousand dollars and it wound up in New Orleans. Uh, last time I saw it, it was at Rao Antiques in New Orleans. And I think they had it listed for three hundred, three fifty thousand roughly. So <laughs> you never know. You know, this is it's almost like picking, you know, these guys on uh, yeah. on TV yep. go through an American pickers. Uh, nothing wrong with that. And you can find some of the craziest stuff, particularly if you have access in Europe where you can go right. through, you know, the former right. Eastern Bloc countries and, you know, look for these things. Some have turned up in Spain. There were some Hebrew enigmas that have turned up in Israel. Huh. Uh, there were a number that have turned up in Norway. They found a number of them in Brazil. So they did, they weren't just in Germany. That's what I'm getting at. So mm. don't leave any stones unturned. And if you're an antiquer, you know, watch around through the antique shops and look for old German typewriters. <laughs> you never know. You might actually find one. And the Germans did have other things besides enigmas. Uh, there were other types of mechanical devices, but the, the enigmas certainly, you know, by far the most popular. Sure. And, um, so there are other things to collect uh, in my collection. I've, I've got, um, U.S. devices. So there was a little machine that uh, was used through the Vietnam War. That, that those are very easy to find. Little um, uh, kind of fits on your knee type of device. So they were made here in America, but it was a, a patent that was owned by a Swedish company that later became a Swiss company. There were devices made through the Cold War, so into the fifties and sixties before computers came of age. And in fact, there's a company that's out that went out of business last year in Switzerland, the Hagelin Company. And the Hagelin Corporation had been making uh, essentially machines that competed with the Enigma, also mechanical machines. And they were really, really good at it. And they, the Enigma uses, uh, it's electro-mechanical, uh, so you have a battery, wires, light bulbs, you can press a, a key, a light bulb lights up that is your cipher text letter. 
But the, another way of doing this is what they call pen and love. So when you, you line up a letter that you want to encipher, rotate the little um, knob on the side, and a set of pens and lugs will line up a certain letter, which types it onto a piece of paper. And you do this one letter at a time. And so as you, as you go through the message, what comes out, of course, is ciphertext. Well, these are all based on mathematical formulas, prime numbers, you know, ways that, that uh, make it hard to go in reverse. You know, a good cryptographic algorithm only has a one-way function. And there's really no way to go backwards unless you have the key to go backwards. So mechanical devices can do that. And the Hagelin Corporation had created a number of them that were pretty good. Well, in the early 50s, they came out with one that was really good. I mean, so good that the NSA here was unable to do what they call solve it. So it was unsolvable, hmm. meaning they couldn't crack it. And this, this bothered the NSA. And there's been a few magazine articles and newspaper stories that have come out over the past few years, but the best we can figure out, there was an arrangement, a gentleman's agreement made between the NSA, the German intelligence services, yes. and the Hagelin yes. Corporation to create devices that if they went to a NATO country, they could be unsolvable. If it went to a non-NATO country, it had to look and act and feel just like the hard ones, but it had to be solvable. Mm. We, so we, heard, we we reported on the story yes. about 18 yes. months ago, yes. maybe two years yep. ago. Yep, because yep. it was a big it deal. It literally had like a, if you want to think of it as a mechanical backdoor built into it. Mm-hmm. That's not a true backdoor like you would think, you know, cryptographic in terms of math, but they weakened the system so it became solvable. And these were sold to the Egyptians, mm-hmm. you know, to other nations, non-NATO, and, and allowed U.S. and Western forces to continue to monitor it. And this continued up to just a few years ago when they were outed. That company's out of business now. Yep. And um, it's a it's a an interesting tale. I, I hope someday that Hollywood makes a movie of it. I'm just, <laughs> this is a, a great Cold War spy thriller. There's, you know, Hollywood, like they do with the imitation game, they'll add their own subplots into it. But the, the general story is absolutely fascinating, and particularly how long we kept that secret. Because, you know, secrets aren't kept very well. And that's one of the few that were, were kept very, very well. So it's, a, it's a, a, another fun thing of, of collecting these devices is to learn these stories, learn the histories, the, the deals that have gone on behind us. And then you can apply it looking forward. You know, what about today's devices, the encryption that's built into your iPhones, your Androids, uh, the encryption that's going on, you know, over Zoom and over Teams? Are they breakable? Are they solvable? You know, are we, are we trusting these things to be highly secure or are there, you know, hitches and glitches that, that we're not aware of? And, you know, the, the mature person would say, absolutely, you know, it's there. You can't, you can't just go in with blinders on but it doesn't. It also means you don't use the products. You use them, you know, with your eyes wide open. And of course, our adversaries have changed. We're not up against the Nazis anymore. We're up against some very worthy adversaries, namely China and Russia and, and others. So we have to be aware of that. That uh, we, the United States, Western allies, we are no longer the king of the hill. There, there are other adversaries that are as good as this game as we are, and maybe in some cases even better at it. Than we are. And that goes all the way back to what I was talking about earlier. We need more people. We need more folks that are in this game that, that understand the defensive side, understand how to protect ourselves, understand the threats, where we're going, the long history that's gotten us here. 
you know, can, and can continue to help us going forward. So I will always make that appeal. We need those bright minds. They need to come into this career field and, and help protect everybody else. I, I, I agree, Marcus. And you, you remind me of a story of, was it Trick with Team Poison? And yep. there was a lot of folks that were advocating when Anonymous was at its peak of popularity and just after. Like, this could end badly. If folks like this that have these loosely formed groups that are skilled to varying degrees uh, in, in hacking, as it were, if they were to defect to terrorist groups, this could be a problem. And, I mean, unfortunately, that came that came true. And... It, the whole story is really interesting uh, as the, all these details came to light. And it turns out Drake and his wife and uh, the son were all killed in drone strikes. Which, I mean, that that whole story is just amazing to read. Right. And that, again, is probably a story that right now we're aware of it. But do future generations, are they taught that lesson? You know, are they aware of what's going on? I, I mean, we're so filled with all these these vignettes and stories and things that have happened that most people never heard of, yeah. unless you just yes. happen to read the article, right? Or you know, Wired magazine might dig something up and do do a good you know, story about it. But it's there's so much that just is untold, buried, and hidden that uh, we'd love to hear. Well, got a these are, these yeah. are the stories that you know when my my dad goes. So what's interesting in your world? I go, you you really don't want to know. <laughs> no. So Mark, I got a uh, you know. Two questions for you. Uh, the first one being, you know, bringing us sort of back full circle to Code Girls and the collecting of, you know, physical crypto systems. What's some of the availability like of some of the systems that were used for uh, the Japanese side um, that they may have used, like Purple and a few others? Yeah, those are mm. those are real unicorns. There, um, the the very few that exist are in museums. Uh, NSA has a few of them. The purple system, believe it or not, was based on a telephone switching device, a PBX, using stepper switches. Oh, wow. um, they just modified it. And purple is a, it's a whole other interesting story. So with Enigma, we actually captured several Enigma machines. And like I mentioned, the, the forerunners were out there, so people understood how Enigma worked. When purple came along, when the Japanese started in encrypting, we didn't understand what was going on. We couldn't couldn't make any sense out of what was happening, and we didn't have a device to look at. And some very smart minds asking the right questions were able to, to reverse engineer, essentially, the purple machine and built a near-exact copy of it just kind of by guessing and inferring how such a machine should work. So after the war, when they actually got their hands on some real purples and compared it to this machine, this prototype we had built that could act like one, it was almost a perfect match. Oh Absolutely amazing. I didn't, I didn't know that. I remember the purple, purple machine from the yeah. book. Yeah. 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 And it, yeah. but it's hard. What, what was behind it was the old stepper switches mm. that we used for rotary dial telephones, which were coming of age in World War II. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the mechanical device that was behind making it work. And so we, we, you know, we had that, we just didn't know how they had it hooked up. So, Again, lots of really cool stories if you've got the time to go and dig and read and ask questions and, and find out about it. But these, uh, the, the Japanese devices, extremely, extremely hard to find. Other ones that are hard to find would be the, the high-level things that NSA and others were using for strategic communications, uh, SIGABA and Type-X and some machines that, that only a few were built. 
very few survive. Uh, you, you know, the rarest of all is the big old uh, bombs, the OMBE, mm, yep. that we were using to crack the enigmas. Yeah. None of them survived. They were all dismantled, thrown away after the war. Colossus, a, they they rebuilt one, though. Uh, that's right. I mean, they, they have built, you know, working prototypes, models. But I'm talking about the real McCoy. I thought, they, uh, I, thought they, I thought they had a real McCoy at the uh, Cryptological Museum. Uh, Crypto Museum. These are all, that's, not these a, all, that's a copy. Of Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. And go look up Colossus. There was mm-hmm. one wheel, an aluminum wheel, left from the original Colossus that didn't go to the scrapyard. And other than that, they have rebuilt. They, they had a Colossus project a number of years ago in the UK to rebuild the machine. So they have a working prototype looks acts functions just like the original but is not the original machine interesting it's it's a rebuild so that's that's extremely rare you know to find those things i was fortunate nsa in some of the machines the rotor-based machines we were building we were very careful about making sure they got destroyed but sometimes the rotors the actual you know little round thing that Mm -hmm. rotates it's got the pins on it they would take all the wiring out and then they'd use them as going away presents for huh. people. <laughs> so I've got one of these. There's a few of them out there. If you're, if you're a really good hunter, you can find bits and pieces of machines that only exist in museums. You just kind of have to be real careful about where you go look for them, looking in unexpected places and be able to identify them. You know, so if you're looking yeah. at something that's got you know, numbers around the outside, little pins, and doesn't make any sense, you might very well be looking at a piece of an old mechanical cipher device. And for five bucks, you know, the local uh, uh, antique store, <laughs> so right. you quickly buy it, just like yep. you would an old German typewriter, and you sneak out of there before anybody knows what you found. Marcus, do you have a, a talk on cipher machines? Like the history of cipher machines, or how to how to acquire cipher machines? Uh, I do. So I, I did a talk at RSA a number of years ago mm-hmm. on what we were mentioning earlier with the um, the Hagelin Corporation, and this was based on there was a Freedom of Information Act um, of set of documents that NSA released back around 2015 or so. Unfortunately, they they did not do a good job of redacting those documents, and that's where we began to pieced together this long believed story that there had been a backdoor in these devices and the evidence of that was in these unredacted documents that were accidentally released. Mm-hmm. Well, so I did a talk on that at RSA right after I did that talk and I didn't realize this was going on. Another set of reporters had, had also kind of sniffed that there was a problem. They began doing their investigative reporting and they published in the Washington post and in uh, a German uh, newspaper, Die uh, Zeitung, or one of those, a much deeper expose. And even since then, more has come out. So that talks out there. If you go to the RSA archives, you can see that one. But I've got a kind of a general history talk that I give. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done it at B-Sides here in Huntsville. Uh, I've given it uh, to different ISSA and ISC squared uh, groups. And when I do that, it, it's essentially uh, probably 90% Enigma, 10% all the other stuff because gotcha. you need to understand there's more to right. this than just Enigmas. Sure. But when I do those, I'll bring the co- some of the collection with me. So the Enigma that works, of course, mm-hmm. I'll bring that along mm-hmm. so people can see it. Also a Fialka, which is a, a Soviet Union machine. Hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's electric, so it's not battery operated by the Enigma. You actually have to plug it in to make it work. Uh, the Soviet, actually, the, I have two of those. Uh, the Russians consider them to be 
control cryptographic items. They don't want anybody owning them, but there's nothing they can do about it because they literally escaped. When the Soviet Union imploded mm. in the early 90s, the ones that were in Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, they all quickly found their way out of Europe <laughs> in the collector's hands. And the Russians, of course, don't like that one little bit because these are pretty good machines. Yeah. But um, yeah, those, those all bring uh, some other little hand-operated devices, little wheels and gizmos. I've got some things from the early 20s that came out of France that were used by businesses. So it's a fun talk to give. And it, it's something particularly for, for minds that want to see them, where they want to play with them. Because um, if you go to a museum, they're sitting under glass. You yeah, can't touch you can't it. touch yeah. it. Right, right, and, right. And uh, right. one thing about these mechanical devices, if you're if it's sitting under glass, it's not doing the mechanical device any good. They need to be operated. Yeah. The, mm. the keys need to be pressed. The wheels need to be rotated. Otherwise, the, the, you know, the, the oil in there dries up. You know, the grease dries up. You, you got to keep them lubricated and running. The springs will you know break. So it's it's like a car. You know, mm. if you if you're into car collecting, you don't want that car just sitting in the garage admiring you. You want to turn it on and drive it around a little bit, just mm-hmm. get the, the oil warm and uh, they yeah. last a lot longer. Mm. So mechanical devices, same way. You, yeah. you gotta you gotta run them in order to in order to preserve them. Speaking of running them right. to, pre- to preserve them, what's sort of next on your list of either system or component that you're sort of hunting down for that you, do, that, <laughs> that, that, is, that, that you don't want to, you know, one that you, it's okay. Oh, well, I'd say it, it's another unicorn, but, but there are a few out there. There were some typewriters that were made for the Americans to take a, a shot at translating the German or the uh, Japanese stuff. Yes. Which might have been these. encrypted by purple or not. Right. So, so if you think about the Japanese language, you know, we've got lots and lots and lots of pin strokes that make up a character or a word. Yep. But when you're talking a typewriter, it's a discrete number of keys. And if you want to put it out over Morse code, you know, there's kind of a finite number of Morse code characters you can use. So the Japanese developed a shortcut um, and they, they came up with a way of encoding Japanese using Morse code so that you could literally type it into a machine and send it out teletype mm. style. So some typewriters were built that kind of reverse that process. <clears throat> if you type in the American letter, the English letter, <clears throat> it sounds like the Morse code. <clears throat> like if it's a dot, dit, that would be E in, in English, or a da, dash would be T in English. So you type that in. What hits the paper is the Japanese equivalent. So you're literally typing it in in English, and it's coming out in Japanese. That's what I'm looking for. Oh, one wow. of those. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I remember. Some, I remember reading some story about like the Japanese typewriter that was Japanese characters, and it was something ridiculous, like it had like 300 yeah. and something keys on it. But well, they were right, a little different. Right. Wait a minute. Wait yeah. a minute. There's three Japanese alphabets. There's hiragana, katakana, and kanji. And so there's Japanese kan- kanji is the the ideograms. The the single character means a word or a concept or an idea. And uh, there are typewriters that'll do that, but they're oh my god weird. Yeah, they're actually they have a ball above the paper, and you you move the, the the striking piece above the paper, and you select the striking piece, and then you smack it, and so it puts right. the line, the stroke in in place. It's hmm. it's crazy, but the hiragana or katakana are just like American alphabets or yeah. rom- romaji yeah. alphabets in that they uh, have a def- phonetic alphabet. So a specific yeah. character has a specific sound. This, this one is in kana. It, it's ka- katakana. 
is the, the specific one I'm looking for. And the reason I'm looking for it is back at Bletchley Park, which is where the British were doing their coke cracking, uh, somebody there by hand created little index cards with every kind of word, the symbol, phrase that could come up with, translated into English and all the possible other meanings that it can have. And it's in a card deck sitting in a museum um, there at Bletchley, if you're ever there to go look at it. Well, I, in collecting, I came across three of these cards. It somehow escaped from Bletchley. <laughs> They're sitting here in my collection. So I, I'm trying to find the typewriter that goes along with those cards. That, that Again, it's, all, it's like hunting a unicorn. But it's, yeah. it's still fun to look for. Uh, there's another little thing called a Kira. It's a handheld, looks like a stopwatch. And uh, there are a few of those around. They're hard to find. But if you can find one, they're kind of fun to collect as well. So, um, yeah, there's some of those things that are on my short list. I don't think I'll ever find them, but you never know. You, just, you always just keep your eyes open. But a lot of us also collect things that are not directly uh, cipher machine related, but all the peripheral things that go around it uh, could be code books, um, things like the German order of battle. This was something that uh, the allies had put together in 1942, 43, 44, that uh, gives you all the names and numbers, who the commanders were. So if you find an encryption device, you can figure out what unit was in, you can look it up in the German order of battle and determine exactly who was using it. That's kind of fun. You put a face to a name or, I've got a, uh, a, a German set of identification papers to an Enigma operator. So he was a young corporal in the Nazi army, and his job was was an encryption machine operator. It says that in his identity papers. So, you know, little things like that are, are fun to collect because it's it's also part of the hobby. It's not just World War II, but it's, it's across the board. I've got things from the Vietnam era the Korean War. Uh, don't have anything from the Civil War. That'd be kind of fun, but those are extremely rare. You can find any you know, Civil War artifacts. But uh, again, it's a fascinating hobby, but watch your wallet. My goodness, <laughs> you can spend your entire retirement on these things. Um, and and mm-hmm. uh, on, on the other hand, they make a great investment. There's some, some people collect wine, cigars, all kinds of stuff. You collect cipher machines. It's awesome, Marcus. I want to thank you for coming on uh, Paul Security Weekly this evening. It was awesome having you on, man. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. And I'm surprised we took forever for us to do this. I know. know, Let's don't wait another 20 years, right? We'll have to have (laughs) you back. Have to have you back. Thanks so much. With that, we'll take a short break and come back with the security news. Stay tuned. 